Brought my tennis balls. Good morning. The Lord be with you. Our reading from the Gospel of Luke is known as the parable of the rich fool. Uh, In the parable, Jesus speaks of this certain rich man who had plenty but was running after even more. He has trouble gathering all that he has in the text. But instead of sharing, he decides to build bigger barns to store his abundance while thinking, man, I've got it made. Uh, I can eat and I can drink and I can be merry and I can take it easy. Jesus said the rich man had never considered being rich toward God through loving God, through loving others around him, loving the neighbors. He only cared for himself. And Jesus, I think here, is pointing to a a deep principle of humanity, um, that life does not consist in the abundance of what we have, that the rooting of our very being is not in something external, Uh, whether possessions or status or fame or beauty or likes on Facebook. Um, Those are not evil in and of themselves, but they must be held in the context for us as people of faith, held in the context of a quest to be rich towards God and in the love of the other. In this parable, Jesus is bumping up against the issue of how we humans define ourselves, uh, how we determine our sense of self. And it's an anthropological point, a human point. Uh, The psalmist once says, what is man? What is the human being? Which is a great question. Who are you? The scriptures support the idea that there is in every human being since the fall of humankind, both a true and a false self. And what I want to talk about this morning just a bit is about the false self juxtaposed over against the true self and to ask each one of us, do we even know what's going on in us and what we're finding our rooting in? Sometimes this false self and true self are called the new self is a true self and the old self is called the false self. Um, And in this parable, Jesus is describing a guy who is living out of his false self. He is owning things, buying into things, looking for security in things that really don't bring security. What does a false self look like? Um, Simply stated, the false self is a self that God did not create. It's a self that God did not intend. But it's a self that we attempt to create in ourselves. The false self is a kind of pseudo-mock human. It's human living as God never intended humans to live. We see the emergence of this, this created self in the narrative uh, in the book of Genesis with the Adam and Eve story. The scripture says in Genesis 3 that this being, this serpent, approaches the, the couple and begins to talk to them about how they're relating to the world around them. And God had told them how to live and how to express and experience the human life. But the serpent says, quote, for God knows that when you eat from this, this forbidden food, your eyes will be opened. See, he's suggesting that there's something you don't see that you need to see. And you will be like God. In other words, you won't need him if we're eyes open to this. 
and you'll know both good and evil. The false self imagines itself to be like God, to not need God. It's our attempt to be God. This is what's at the root of the fall of humankind. I don't need God. I can be me by myself. And we end up with that kind of life. It's a life that's ordered in a way that was never imagined by God. He didn't create us to be this way. So what was the, the, the self that God created? Well, it starts out that we already are in his likeness and image, <laughs> that we are, we are reflections of him. And, it, and when we drill down into this, we discovered that the Bible talks about human beings as a kind of complexity, that we are not just animal, we're not just mind, but we're this combo of animal and mind and spirit. Sometimes it's called spirit, soul, and body, different ways to describe it. Genesis 2, it talks about the moment of creation. And it says, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, which is that body or animal part, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That word breath means spirit. He spirits man. And the man or the person became a living being, which is that soul part. The idea is somehow this combo of flesh and spirit and soul, somehow that combo causes us as human beings to become a reflection of the divine, a reflection of the holy, an icon or an image of God. The ancients had different ways of talking about this. And one of the ways that they talked about this is that, that they spoke of the animal sense as, as being our, the Latin is anima. It meant the anima was the part of us that was included emotions and passion. And instinct, it was our hearts, our essence, our love, the heart, the, the, the anima of us. And then the other part they would talk about is this notion of the rational will that we have. And they would call that the animus, the anima, the animus. And when they spoke of that, they meant that this is the part of us that thinks things through, that can plan they can cogitate and imagine, right? And then they spoke of the part represented by God's breath as the spiritus. And so you have this anima, the heart, the emotions, the animus, the mind, the will, and the spiritus that wasn't exactly described where it was, but it was kind of the, the idea of it's the part that God uses to bring it all together. And so the real self is a combo of anima, animus, and spiritus, all in right relationship. No one part dominating the other. No one part controlling the other. It sort of rumors the Trinity, where in God is Father, Son, and Spirit. There's mutuality and a giving in this way that's a kind of a dance, not a hierarchical thing, but a kind of dance. It's called the perichoresis in theology, where it means that God is giving himself, and because he's giving and giving within himself, it's almost like a dance and a circle rather than a triangle of hierarchy. And so human beings in some, in some ways reflect this imperfectly, to be sure, because we're finite, he is infinite, we are created, he is uncreated, right? So there's lots of disparity there, but there's some similarity. And, and the reality of it is, is that we were not designed by God for any one of our aspects to be controlling over the other, hierarchical over the other. So we weren't designed for our emotions or our impulses or our, our instincts, our, the anima to neutralize reasoning 
or to neutralize the spiritual part of us. Nor were we designed for our reasoning faculties that order and think strategically uh, to uh, really um, uh, the animus to, to quash the emotions or to quash the spiritual part of our lives as though those things didn't matter. But, and the spiritus part of us was, was really the part, that, the force of life that was to bring everything and hold it in order with mutual Concern, valuing both the emotive, the anima, and the rational parts, the animus, so, so of the human experience. The spirit part is the part that the angels said, based on the text we read, was directly out of God. <laughs> he gave us the capacity to live in a dance within ourselves, an ordered dance in the human experience. And, and that's why the Father, God, is called the Father of Spirits repeatedly in the Bible. The father of spirits. He's the father of our breath. God has a true self in mind in creation. The ordered human being who has a balanced anima, animus, and spiritus. That somehow that we live in this kind of harmony within ourselves. But when we fell, according to the text, we got out of order. Sin produce a disordered self. The disordered self is the false self. This is the failure that occurs in the fall. God had warned the couple to not participate of this fruit and in doing so that they would die. They would surely die. And yet here is Eve in the, in the narrative. True, or, whether it's a, a historical fact or not, it's not really relevant here. There's something going on in the, the fabric of humanity that's captured in the story. And, and so Eve sees this fruit and desires it, exalting the anima, exalting the desire, exult, exalting the impulse, exalting the, the longing, right? The emotion. And ignores the reasoning of God. Or, and ignores the spirit. And what God had said. And in the exaltation of the anima, she disobeys the spirit and disobeys the reason. And there's failure. Adam goes along. He reasons it's okay. He nullifies the spiritus. He nullifies the spiritual command. It's the exaltation of the animus. This kind of disorder created a false self, one that was out of order. So I, I brought a couple of tennis balls with me as, a, as an example. It's a stupid example, but you know what? This is hard to understand. So if this, oh, Lord have mercy. Okay. No, no, it's okay. Yeah, help me. I'm a 60-year-old guy. Brent. <laughs> Turn that. Okay, so if this... Water is the human experience that God imagined us to have. And he creates us. He creates the anima, the feelings, the emotions, the heart. The animus, the will, intelligence, the reasoning faculties that we have. He created us, these to be in order and to be held together. I'll let my hand be the spiritus. The breath of God. And in the breath of God, we're held together so that in the human experience, we're held together. But there's something about our lives that wanted this to get disordered, so they pop out. <laughs> and they're no longer connected, so the animus becomes individuated and fragmented. Or the anima 
becomes individuated or uh, fragmented. And even even our spiritus can act odd. And when that happens, we we don't just live within the human experience. We live outside of it. Somehow there's this exaltation. It's almost as if what was supposed to be ordered and within God's imagination pops out. And when it pops out, it leaves fragments and tries to be God. What happened? The false self, which we could imagine is the part of, the, of that ball that's sticking out beyond the human experience, that's never imagined to be in the human experience. The false self is the one that God did not imagine. It's the one that God does not even acknowledge. He doesn't see it. He doesn't sustain it, which means, and this will mess with your head a minute, it means it's really nothing. The false self is really not a thing at all. It is a fake thing. Things only exist when God creates them. This is the point of scripture when it makes statements like Colossians 1. Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. If it's not in him, it's not there. It's a falsity. Revelations also says, you are worthy. This is Revelations 4.11. You are worthy in a prayer, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Things only have being, only have actuality, only have existence when God creates them. The false self is not a thing that God created. The false self is not, and it's a phantom. (laughs) It's an illusion. It's an emptiness. It's a shadow self. And shadows, as you know, have no realness to them. That's why a life in love with the self, a life that's deaf to God, a life that's disordered and following emotion only or reasoning only is not a life at all. Sin is nothing more than the impulse to create a false self that wants to exalt itself over God. Because it is nothingness, the false self tries to adorn itself with things that give it the illusion of being real. Things like status or applause or more friends on Twitter or accomplishments of dreams or controlling things or people around you. All these kinds of impulse. Or the negative things like unchecked passions or reactions like anger or hatred. These things are, are, are expressed in order to try to feel like you're alive. Trying to give the false self reality, but it doesn't work. This kind of aliveness isn't more than what you get from a video game with pretty good graphics. I mean, it's still a fantasy world. It's not a real world. And your imagined self is not a real self. This is the point of the first text we read in Colossians 3, where Paul writes, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above Where Christ is, he says in a moment, Christ is your life. That's where life is. It's only when you're in Christ and in God that you have reality. It's the only imagined reality God made for the human being. He says, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. What died? Your false self. 
you die to that, or you're supposed to. And your life, which is your true self, the one God imagined, is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, your true self is in Christ. When he appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. He's talking about that false self, that imagined something that isn't anything at all. This, and, and, and he says, put to death, therefore, what belongs to that earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which amounts to idolatry. See, the false self is like a ghost, not God's work. But when you participate in sins like these, immorality, impurity, lust, that kind of, it's like throwing a sheet over a ghost. Remember Casper? You try to give... What has no form, form. Things like immorality, things like evil desire, things like greed, the things, the, these things make us feel alive, at least momentarily. The scripture actually says there's pleasure in sin for a season or for a moment. Season's short. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes. You used to walk in all these ways in the life you once lived. What life? That false self-life. But now, rid yourself of all such things. These anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. These are more, more ghost sheets. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off the old self, that false self, with its practices. And you put on the reality of who God imagines you to be. The ordered human being where the animus, anima, and your, and your spiritus are united and in union and in God and you put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image. Remember we were made in the likeness and the image of God. Somehow we were de-imaged. We were hurt. We were fragmented. But you're in the image of its creator. That true self. See sinful things are attempts at making the false self into a real self which it cannot be because it wasn't created by God and only things created by God have being. I walked in when I was a teenager to my sister, one of my sisters, who had been deeply depressed for months. And this was way back in the 60s, right? And so, you know, some of that stuff wasn't addressed very well. I walked in the room, and there she was sitting at, at, at a table with a razor in her hand. And she was cutting herself. I said, what are you doing what are you doing? She just looked at me with almost dead eyes and said, I just, she wasn't trying to kill herself. She said, I just want to feel something. I don't feel anything. See, this is the false self. It grabs sin. It grabs pride. It grabs greed. This was the problem of the rich man in the Jesus story. Grabbing stuff, thinking more stuff will make him real. Thinking more success will make them more alive. Thinking more sin, immorality, will at least make me feel some pleasure because I need to feel alive, because I don't feel alive. The problem is you'll never feel alive in the false self because it isn't a real self. We, life outside of God is no real life. It's invisible to God. It is not his creation. He is not sustaining it. He is not holding it in life. It is not real. Jesus called and Paul called it the flesh, the false self. And he said it profits nothing 
No thing, no thing. It is no thing. It is nothing. We don't need a false self. It only limits us. God replacement doesn't work. What's weird is that this is the only self some of us have ever known. The false self. Which means we, some of us, have only known deception. We have no idea what this is about. Even our religion sometimes can be an attempt to give the false self reality. That's called bad religion. Trying to appeal, trying to appease God. So what does the real self look like? The true self celebrates the fullness of the created human self as God imagined it to be by embracing and finding unity with the anima, the emotions, the heart, the passions, with the animus, the mind, and the reasoning, and the imagined thought process, and the will, and the spiritus. It's that union. The true self can live in a way that makes it safe to fully enjoy everything from Food, to sex, to friendship, to theological or, or philosophical discourse, to career, to music, to whatever can be enjoyed in the world. It's a person fully alive. There's no diminishing in the true self. The false self is disordered. It's all about fragmenting, all about independence. The false self sometimes fragments the animus, our capacity to reason, and it rises up with mind racing and demanding complete control, ignoring the feelings, ignoring the spiritual, and imagining it's real when it isn't real at all. It's false. At other times, the false self is the anima trying to rise up, fragmenting, independently pushing back. This is our capacity to feel and to, the impulses and the passions. It rises in independence and it rages to the suppression of the mind, rages in suppression of the spirit because it's just the way I feel and I need to be honest with my feel. But it's not real. And if the false self ever happens to cycle through to the spiritus, the part that contacts God, it tries to fragment from both the anima, the emotions, and the heart, and the passions, and the animus, the reasoning, and the will, and the rationale. And it tries to fragment from that and equates spirituality with the denial of passion, or the denial of pleasure, or the loss of reason. Again, that is the bad, oppressive religion. It's not the God kind. It's not out of the true self. It is a false self-religion. The true self knows no fragmentation. The true self seeks to bring out its best gifts, beauty, talents, abilities for the glory of God, for the helping of the other. The false self tries to pull out the best, you know, the talents, the beauty, the, the, the abilities to impress others and to call attention to itself in order to feel like it matters, like it's real. The true self finds rest in God. 
The false self frenetically runs at things like a greyhound in pursuit of that little rabbit that runs out in front of it in the races in hope to secure a modicum of peace. But like the dogs in the race, the false self never catches the rabbit, never catches peace. The false self is very concerned about how it comes across to others how it's perceived or loved or attended by others. There's this deep sense of fear that it will be unnoticed or unseen or cellophane. The true self knows it's been created by a God who sustains it, whether anyone else notices it. It it, it knows that, that somehow that God is the one who holds him or her in life, the true self in life. And that there's some kind of a book written about each one of us particularly. That the true self knows that the individual, each individual is born in a particular place for a particular time for a particular purpose. And that each one of us is a dream of God come true. The true self is secure. The false self always reacts in anger, jealousy, fear, manipulation. Anything that it can grasp to appear to control a given situation. The true self needs no such things. It's meek. It doesn't react when its face is slapped. It turns the other cheek. It responds from another place where there is no sting, no pain, no injury. It responds from a rest in God and in his ability to give wisdom whenever things happen. Paul continues past what we just read in Colossians 3, and he describes the true self imagined by God. This is Colossians verse 12, 3, 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. This is the new, the true. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's the great sanctified anima. Bear with one another and forgive one another as you have grievance against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgives you. There's lots of strong reasoning and consideration going on when you talk about forgiveness. So there's no quashing of the animus. And over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. That's the hand of the Spiritus holding everything. And then the peace of Christ will rule in your hearts since as members of the body you were called to peace and be thankful. This is the true self. Okay, so I need to stop at this. How do you awaken it? The true self. I'm not sure. (laughs) This is the bad news. Let me leave you discouraged. I'm not sure how it works for you. And I'm still trying to figure it out and, and, and I kind of suck at it. It's, it's a bit like roller skating for me. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm really bad at roller skating. And a number of other things. But plus, to make matters worse, the true self is real, but really hard to find. It's hidden in Christ, in God. What helps me the most is I try to start with God not myself. And, and I, when I pray, I, I think about how God pervades everything. How he spans the whole universe, 10 and a half billion light years. Unimaginable. But he has it all within himself. Not only the seen, but an unseen dimension he's created. And he has all that in himself. And because he holds me in life, the psalm says he holds us in life. That means I'm connected to him and he's connected with me, which means I'm connected to all of that. 
And sometimes I just imagine in my mind that I'm as close to the, to, to, you know, when I'm, because I'm in God, I'm connected to everything, every person, everything, every star, every angel, every saint that's gone before me, that somehow because I'm in God, I'm connected to all of that. And, and that my individuation is not just me being isolated from God, but it's almost the, the best way I like to think about my individuation is, 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 is a, like an ocean wave when it comes up and you see that little white part that's caps, you know, the little white caps. There's, they're individuated. The waves are individuated, and yet they're not really individuated at all. They're part of the ocean. That the only real individual we are is that we stick out a little bit in our experience and in our personalities. But we're not by ourselves. We are part of each other. We are part of history. We're part of creation. We're part of creation that isn't seen. We're part of a story that's unfolding that will carry into eternity. And somehow in the midst of that, I like to sit in that until I lose control and realize this is about God and not about me. And I try to hang there until it messes with me. And somehow in that, and then the other thing, because I'm, I'm a charismatic Pentecostal background, I pray in tongues there a lot, because I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> I also try to remember that I know my false self better than my true self. And I ask God to help me discern where I'm living from. But the truth of the matter is, it's easier to know when you're not walking in the true self than when you actually are. If you're not living in your true self, you get angry easily. You're selfish, fearful, easily offended, greedy, lustful, reactionary. And so those are those moments where you just simply have to say, God, I'm not very good at this. In fact, I've only known the false self the best as my real self, and I know it's not. And so I humbly repent, and I ask you to help me to let you rise up in me with my true self. And it's that struggle that we live every day. What also helps me are written prayers. I like to pray written prayers of the Book of Common Prayer. If you've never done that, it's sweet. There's other written prayers you can read, but they help, they're theological. They help me to grasp my mind and not just pray out of my anima or pray out of my animus, but to pray theologically and with wisdom. I love also to come to church. Somehow when I come to church, I remember who I am. And mostly for me, the most important part for me is the Eucharist. Because somehow when we come to the Eucharist and we're encountering the presence of God, it's so mysterious and so odd, such an odd thing, eating the bread, eating the cup. It's like the body and blood of Jesus. How gross is that? The notion you're eating, it's cannibalism. It's offensive. But something in the mystery of all that throws me beyond my anima and my animus and somehow just says let God wrap you and be the agent of action in this moment and somehow I find my true self I know that uh, some of this is a tad obtuse and obscure yeah but why wouldn't it be right I mean we we're following a being we can't see who loves to hide Faith just is what it is. Amen. Yeah, I'm going to take this down. <laughs> Would you stand as we declare what it is that we believe?
together with millions and millions of others around the world today. We believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. In peace we pray to you, Lord God, for all people in their daily life and work, for our families, friends, and neighbors, and for those who are alone, for this community, the nation, and the world, for all who work for justice, freedom, and peace, for the just and proper use of your creation, for the victims of hunger, fear, injustice, and oppression, for all who are in danger, sorrow, or any kind of trouble, for those who minister to the sick, the friendless, and the needy, for the peace and unity of the Church of God, for all who proclaim the gospel and all who seek the truth. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing of this life. We exalt you, O God, our King, and praise your name forever and ever. We remember our brother, Father Jacques Hamel, the 86-year-old Catholic priest slain in an attack while conducting a worship service in France. Lord, help us do what we must to see this kind of violence stop. Lord, let your loving kindness be upon all who put their trust in you. just a moment we're going to be coming to the table to receive and every one of you that are here that have a love for God we invite you to the table you don't have to be a member of this church and uh, but what we want to encourage you to understand at the end of the service we have a time when people are prayed for over here and oftentimes they'll put their hands on people it's a it's an old ritual that is as old as you know the Bible is this notion of putting hands we don't, it's a ritual that we don't trust, but we do. And when we do it, what we're trusting is not in our hands or in our mouths, but we're trusting the God of gods to move through that, to be the agent of power. And so when we ask people, when we pray for them, we really just ask them not to perform, not to do something, but simply to just be open and to receive. This is what is the essence of what a sacrament is. It's God is the actor. We do the ritual of having the bread and the wine. We do the ritual of praying these prayers. But what we're really looking for is God to work. And so when you come to receive, you don't have to come to perform or try to show your faith. All you have to do is come with an openness, willing and open to a God to work in you through his presence in the bread and through his presence in the cup. And so 
just to make sure our hearts are open. Because if you have sin kind of hanging around in your head or guilt hanging around in your head, that's never good, right? So we want to pray a prayer of, of repentance and confession just to sort of prepare and orient our hearts to receive the Eucharist. So I want to invite you to pray with us. Let's pray for the forgiveness of our sins. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. In your compassion, forgive us our sins, known and unknown, things done and left undone. And so uphold us by your Spirit that we may live and serve you in newness of life to the honor and glory of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. And let me say this over your almighty God. Have mercy on you. And forgive all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthening you in all goodness and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. Amen. Right. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.